0: Um, We really love the Bible here and want you to love it and know it yourself. And and because we love the Bible here, one of our kind of normal patterns is to preach through books of the Bible. And so if you're new with us, uh, we're currently in a series walking through the book of Genesis. And so you can open up to Genesis uh, chapter 32. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning, Genesis chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible, good news, we have one for you. Uh, Over there on that table, if you didn't grab one on your way in, we've got some black hardback ones. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, you can take that and keep it. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. But Genesis 32 is where we're going to be this morning, seeing a a real famous story where Jacob wrestles with God uh, all night long. And what we're going to see in this text is really Jacob have these two movements. He starts by first fearing the face of Esau and then second, seeing the face of God. And so let's look at this text and what it has for us. We'll start by reading the first 21 verses, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 32, the very word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus You shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he's behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And so last week we saw uh, Jacob take off from Laban's house after 20 long years of serving him and start his journey back to the promised land. He's been in exile out of this land for 20 years, and uh, a bunch has happened at Uncle Laban's house in the past 20 years. He's coming back to the land with four wives, uh, 12 kids, a bunch of animals and livestock. He's got quite the caravan with him, right? And so he, he takes off, and the text tells us that at some point, the angels of God meet him, and so he calls the place, uh, he says, this is, God's, uh, this is God's camp, and he calls the place Mahanaim, which means two camps, his camp and God's camp. Now, if if you're reading this, as we read this, and you heard this, and you're thinking, where have I heard this before? You should be thinking that, because you have heard this before, if you've been with us. Uh, In chapter 28, 20 years ago, when Jacob left the promised land and was fleeing towards Laban's house, uh, God met him at a no-name place in the wilderness, just like this, and he, in a dream and a vision, put a stairway from heaven out, and it said that the angels of God were ascending and descending on the ladder. God met him there on his way out of the promised land 20 years ago, and here again the angels of God are meeting him, and God's about to meet him uh, in this same place as he comes back into the land, showing Jacob that God has been with him every step of the way. Even if and when Jacob did not know it or realize it, uh, God has been with him, and God has kept his promise to him to bless him and to protect him and to be with him and to make him fruitful and multiply him. But before Jacob comes back into the land, he knows that he's got some unfinished business with his brother Esau. He wants to reconcile with his brother Esau, and so he sends messengers to Esau to let him know that Jacob is coming back into the land. And, and remember, like, the reason Jacob fled out of the promised land in the first place is because Esau literally wanted to kill him. And so verse 6 tells us that the messengers come back, and they're like, hey, we found Esau, and uh, he's actually coming to meet you, and he's got 400 of his friends with him. Now, that's what the kids would call an army, right? Like, that, that's not the beginnings of a good meeting. And, and so Jacob's rightly terrified. He's kind of peeing down his leg a little bit, and he's like, oh, my gosh. Like, Esau still wants to kill me. I'm going to die. And, and so he hatches this plan. He, he divides his one camp into two camps because his thinking is, well, if Esau comes and attacks one of them, at least the other one is going to be able to escape. And so so just a few verses ago, he said this is God's camp, and he called the place Mahanaim. two camps, his camp and God's camp, but but now he doesn't believe that God is going to protect him from his brother Esau, and so he feels like he has to scheme and divide his camp into two camps. But before he finishes scheming, he does start to pray in verse 9, and I think this is really instructive for us. He prays, and he says, God, you are the one who told me to go back to my homeland, and you are the one who promised that you would do me good. And he acknowledges, God, I'm unworthy of all the kindness that you've shown me. I left this land empty with just a staff, and yet, man, you've filled me. I have two camps now because of all that you've done for me. You've been so gracious to me and so faithful and so kind to me. And then I love what he does here. I think this is just so instructive for us. Uh, he prays God's word back to him. He says in verse 11, God, I'm terrified. Like Esau wants to kill me. I think he's going to kill me and my family. I'm terrified of what he's going to do. But look again at what he says in verse 12. He says, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I, I love this because here's what Jacob does he looks at his situation and he says, God, this is my situation. I think Esau still wants to kill me, and I'm terrified, but God, this is what you said. This is what you promised. You promised to protect me and bless me and provide for me and be with me. God, please be faithful to me. Please keep your promise to me. Listen, can I just encourage you, if you don't really know how to pray, man, this is a great place to start. Maybe this is a great way for you to begin praying. Just read the word of God and pray God's promises back to him. Like God, I, I don't know much, but I do know that you've said this. I do know that you've promised to do this. God is a faithful God. He loves to keep his promises, and he loves when we pray his promises back to him and when we trust him as faithful, when we depend on him. God loves it when we pray his promises back to him. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many examples of people doing this in the Bible. I mean, Moses prays like this. Abraham prays like this. David prays like this. Nehemiah prays like this. The church in Acts 4 prays like this. They all say, God, this is what you said. This is what you promised to do. Keep your word. Please be faithful to your promise. I think one of the reasons God even gives us prayer is so that as we pray God's promises back to him, we might be moved to trust those promises and not fear any longer. The psalmist in Psalm 56 verses 3 and 4, he says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? The psalmist knows that when he trusts in God, he has nothing to fear because man isn't who he should fear most. God is, and God is for him. But that isn't what Jacob does here, right? Like, he, he does pray, he takes this step forward, but then he immediately after the prayer goes back to scheming uh, because he's still terrified of Esau. Verse 13 tells us that he organizes this massive present for Esau. Basically what he does, is he gets this, all these massive caravans of gifts, uh, and he sets them up so that they will come up on Esau in stages, so that a servant will come with a massive gift and say, hey, uh, this is a gift from your servant Jacob, he's coming to meet you. And then by the time that that servant has said that, the next caravan of gifts uh, will come up and the servant will say the same thing. And this gift that Jacob is giving Esau is crazy. Like get the idea that Jacob's basically sending his servants to Esau and the first servant comes up and he's like, Esau, these 10 BMWs, uh, these are a gift from Jacob. He's coming to meet you. And then the next servant comes up and is like, hey, Esau, these 15 Teslas, Uh, They're a gift from Jacob. He's coming to meet you. He wants to see you. The next servant comes up. Hey, Esau, 20 Mercedes, they're a gift from Jacob. I mean, he's just rolling out like Lamborghinis and Maseratis, like the nicest stuff of the day, just trying to overwhelm Esau with this gift so that Esau will not want to kill him anymore. I think just how over the top this gift is shows just how terrified Jacob is of Esau And how he's still trying to control the situation and take things into his own hands. Verse 20, it even tells us that he's doing this because he's thinking, maybe this will make Esau accept me. Maybe this will, notice the footnote if you've got an ESV, maybe this will appease his face. And when I see him face to face, he won't want to kill me. He'll accept me. He's worried about Esau. He's fearing seeing the face of Esau. But as this text moves on, we're going to see that's not actually what Jacob should fear most, because this text moves from fearing the face of Esau to Jacob then seeing the face of God. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And so Jacob uh, separates from his family. He puts his family on the other side of the river so that he can get alone on this night uh, before what he thinks is going to be the most important day of his life the next day when he meets Esau and sees him again face to face. But the text tells us that as he's alone in the middle of the night, a man... Uh, comes to wrestle with him, and they wrestle all night long. Uh, and, and of course, as readers of the story, we know the end of the story, and we know who this mysterious man is coming to wrestle with Jacob. Uh, but at this point, you've got to remember, Jacob still doesn't know who this is. Like, you've got to remember, there's no electricity, there's no flashlights or street lamps. Like, it's just pitch black dark here. And so I assume Jacob probably thinks this is either Laban or Esau coming to wrestle with him in the dark. And I think in this, the author of Genesis wants us to see that this night of wrestling in the dark actually is a microcosm, like it sums up Jacob's entire life. Jacob's entire life has been wrestling. Wrestling with Esau in the womb, then wrestling with Esau for uh, his dad's blessing and birthright, then wrestling with Laban, trying to scheme and get the upper hand and come out on top. And look, up to this point, it really seems like Jacob has been able to outwit them all, right? Someone I was reading this week pointed out that in wrestling, you're not trying to kill somebody. Like, you actually obviously want to very much keep them alive. You're trying to dominate them and outsmart them and prove how much superior you are to them. Like, you want to get them to submit. You want to overpower them and outstrategize them and get them to acknowledge your superiority. And this is what Jacob has done his entire life. Not physically, but, but up to this point, he has outsmarted, outstrategized, outwitted, and outplayed everyone else in his life. He has always come out on top in the end. Like, yeah, he had to flee into exile with just a staff, but he's coming back into the land with massive wealth. And yeah, Laban tricked him with his daughter Leah, but he got the upper hand on Laban in the end. He won out on that deal in the end. He wrestled the blessing and the birthright away from Esau and his dad. He came to Laban's house empty and wrestled away his kids, his grandkids, and a bunch of his flocks. He just got away. It looks like it has always worked out for Jacob. But what Jacob needs to see, and I think what we need to see, is that the person that Jacob has actually been wrestling with with for his entire life wasn't his dad, and it wasn't Esau, and it wasn't Laban. It was God. God is the one that Jacob has been wrestling with his entire life. Like This is the problem underneath all of Jacob's other problems. He thinks the face he needs to appease is Esau's. It's not. It's God's face that he needs to worry about, whether or not God will accept him. Because his whole life, he's been treating God as a means to an end. Even in chapter 28, when God appeared to him in the middle of nowhere and threw out the stairway from heaven and made all these promises about how, Jacob, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I will not leave you until I do what I'm promising to do for you. Even then, Jacob was like, well, if you really are going to do all those things, then I guess I'll follow you. Like, If you end up doing that for me, then then I will follow you. Like, God has been useful to Jacob, but he hasn't been beautiful to him. He's been using God as a means to an end to get to all of these other things. But on this night, God is finally going to break Jacob so that he would seek the blessing in God, so that he would seek God as the blessing. Notice uh, this man has been letting Jacob win all night long, but in verse 25, it tells us, it says that when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, uh, he touched the socket of his hip Uh, With his finger and put Jacob's hip out of joint. Now, clearly, if you can dislocate somebody's hip with the touch of your finger, you're stronger than them, right? Like, you win that fight. You're more powerful than them. And so, when this happens, I think in this moment, Jacob realizes, like, this has to be an angel or this has to be God. Because who else could have the strength to dislocate his hip with just one touch? And, And so, Whoever this man is, Jacob realizes that he is more powerful than him and that he could crush him. And so he holds on to him and he refuses to let him go until he blesses him. You only ask someone that you think is superior to you for a blessing. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say in this moment that Jacob realizes that this is the blessing he's been looking for his entire life. That this is what he has been searching for in the blessing of his father and in the love Of Rachel this is what he has been chasing after and this is what he needs and so he holds on he says I'm not going to let you go until you bless me I'm not letting you get away until you bless me and then the man asked him his name Uh, do you remember what happened the last time somebody asked Jacob his name in chapter 27 when Jacob went into his father Isaac's room his father was blind and he went in dressed up as his brother Esau. His father asked him, my son, what is your name? And when his father did that, he lied and he said, I, I'm Esau. But now here in this moment, Jacob realizes if he is going to be blessed, if he is going to get the blessing, he has to own up to who he really is. He knows this man is more powerful than him. He knows this man is, could crush him. He knows he can't scheme anymore anymore. And so when the man asks him his name, he owns up to it, and he says, I'm Jacob, I'm the cheater, I'm the deceiver, I'm the swindler, that's who I am. And did you notice that it's when Jacob owns up to his identity and owns up to his name and who he really is, that's the moment when God gives him a new name and a new identity. No, you're not going to be Jacob any longer. Your name is Israel. Like How incredible is this? And here's what we see in the story of Jacob. This has just been lighting up my heart as we walk through Jacob's story. Jacob is an awful person. He's just a terrible guy. He's horrible, but God just won't leave him alone. He continues to pursue him. Like Abraham, he had his moments of faithfulness, moments where he really did the right thing and he trusted and obeyed God. Jacob really hasn't. He's really never had that moment in his life. His entire life, he really has never been seeking after God, but God has continued to seek after him, has continued to pursue him and give him grace when Jacob was not looking for it, when Jacob was not asking for it, and when he didn't even appreciate it after he got it. And in here, on this night, we get this moment where God breaks Jacob of his self-sufficiency so that he might come to the end of himself and be given a new self. But this should fill us with great hope, because left to ourselves, there is no hope of change. We're not going to be able to change ourselves. But the good news this story shows us is that even in spite of Jacob's foolishness, Jesus just refuses to quit on him, and Jesus refuses to quit on us. The Bible is not the story of heroes of the faith that God gives grace to because they've figured it out and they're really good people. The Bible is the story of God giving grace to bad people who do not deserve it, who have not earned it, who were not looking or asking for it, and who most of the time don't even appreciate it or change their lives after they get it. He just keeps pouring out his grace like it's Jacob the trickster, the deceiver, the terrible person who is given a completely new name here. Nancy Guthrie puts it like this. She says, God gave Jacob a new name, a new identity that defined him, not by his personal failure, but by God's conquest of his heart, God's defeat of his ways of deception, God's strength in his weakness. God is redirecting the course of Jacob's life here. He is giving him a name and identity that's bigger than his sins and his struggles and his failures. God is saying, Jacob, cheater and deceiver isn't going to be what defines your life any longer. Your sins and your shortcomings are not going to get the loudest word over your life any longer. My grace is. Look, we'll see as we continue walking through Jacob's story. It's not as if Jacob changes overnight. A lot of times it's a big wonder if he even changes at all. And yeah, but the good news is that God's word of grace and blessing is what ultimately wins the victory in Jacob's life. It's what's most defining in Jacob's life. Look, this should give us great hope that the messes that we have made of our lives don't have to be at the end of our story. And not because we're going to get it better and we're going to figure it out and we're going to find out how to reform our lives, but because God gives grace that's bigger and more powerful and more transformative than any of our sin, And that's what the story of Jacob is showing to us. But you have to see how this happens. You have to see how the grace of God comes into our lives. You see, this blessing didn't come into Jacob's life through his strength, but through his weakness. It's when he's broken. It's when he owns up to who he really is. That's when God blesses him. Like he, one commentator said that this is Jacob's defeat and victory all at the same time. His entire life, he has been fighting and rebelling against God, but when God humbles him and breaks him of his self-sufficiency, Jacob clings to him in dependence, and that's when he's given the blessing. And so when Jacob loses is actually when he wins. Jacob wins when he's reduced to weakness and helplessness, when he knows he can't win blessing for himself any longer. He just has to cling to God in the hopes that God would give it. Listen, the same thing is true for us. The grace of God does not come into your life through your strength, but through your weakness, through you humbling yourself and admitting, I'm like Jacob. I have cheated. I have deceived. I have sinned. Sin is not just a few bad things that I've done. Sinner is who I am. And listen, just like God had to break Jacob's hips so that he would be broken of what he depended on, Sometimes God has to break us of our strength, of the things that we trust in and we depend on to make ourselves successful, so that we would stop depending on ourselves and learn that when we are weak is actually when we're strong because God's power is magnified in our weakness. Listen, I wish that wasn't the case. I wish it, that it would just be where we could just hear the Word of God and trust Him and do what He says, and we wouldn't have to metaphorically get our legs broken. But like, let's just be honest with ourselves. When everything in your life is going awesome, how close are you to God? How dependent on him are you? risen king of the entire universe, he's not going to be a side piece or an accessory to anybody's life. He can only be the center. And so God, out of love, he will crush these areas of our old self that still loves and looks to other things so that he can form us into a new self, a new self that clings to him and is dependent on him for blessing. God will break us of our strength, so that he would move from just being useful to us to beautiful to us so that we would stop treating him as a means to an end, and he would become the end that we are living for. And so we have to come to God in our weakness, but I I think this story also shows us something about God. Um, Clearly, by the end of the story, Jacob realizes he's been wrestling with God. The man tells Jacob to let him go before the sun comes up, I think presumably because of what God says in the book of Exodus, that no one can see his face and live. And after God renames Jacob, Jacob names the place where they wrestled Peniel, because he says, he realizes, he has been wrestling with God face to face all night long, and yet he didn't die. God didn't crush him. In fact, until he touched his hip, God was kind of letting him win, right? What was God doing? Well, dads, it's kind of like when you wrestle with your boys. What do you do? You get down on the ground with them and you don't use all your strength because if you were to use all of your strength, what would happen? You'd absolutely crush them, right? You'd completely dominate them. And so if you're going to wrestle with them, you're going to make it any sort of a fair fight, you get down on the ground and you make yourself weak. That's what God is doing here. God is making himself weak and letting Jacob get the upper hand, even though at any time he could crush him. As evidenced by the fact that all he has to do is touch Jacob's hip and it knocks it completely out of socket. And so, why does God do it like this? Why does God do this? Well, I think two reasons. One, that we've already seen to teach Jacob to cling to him and to come to him in weakness. But two, I think God is doing this to give us a picture of how he is going to save the world. Because listen, Jacob rightly realizes on this night that his life was spared that he should have died. He, God could have killed him in an instant, but he didn't. And we know from Jacob's story, Jacob does not deserve blessing. He deserves curse. But he isn't cursed. Instead, he is blessed by God. God doesn't crush him, even though he deserves to be. You know why? Because Jesus became the true Jacob. You see, like Jacob... Jesus won his victory by losing through what looked like weakness. Jesus came into the world just like this night on He did, just like this night, like He did wrestling with Jacob. When Jesus came into the world, He made Himself weak to save us. He's God. He is the definition of strength itself, but yet He took on the weakness of our humanity to come and save us. But not only did He take on the weakness of our humanity, uh, he li- he lives the perfect life and after living the perfect life the life that more than any other deserves to be blessed he goes to the cross and he bears the curse of god's justice for us on the cross he takes the blow of justice for our sins that should have come to us he was pierced for our transgression he was crushed for our sins The punishment that brought us peace was put on him. It's by his wounds that we have been healed. You see, Jesus bore the curse of God's justice on the cross, and he held on and he said, I'm not letting go until you bless them. He bore the curse so that we could get the blessing. He took the curse and he held on all the way to death so that blessing could flow to us. So that we who, like Jacob, deserve more than anything else to be cursed, instead would be blessed by God forever because the only one who's ever deserved to be blessed bore the curse for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And because Jesus has done this, because Jesus has become the true Jacob and taken the ultimate blow of justice for us on the cross, here's what you can know. Anything else that comes to you in your life, anything that feels like a blow, it only serves to discipline you and bring you back to God. It is not meant to crush you. Look, because of the cross, here's what you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt. You can know that whatever a a difficult circumstance in your life means, it cannot mean that God does not love you. It cannot mean that God has changed his mind about you. It cannot mean that God has abandoned you. It cannot mean that God is condemning you. And so often what we feel like is God fighting against us is actually what God is using to wake us up and discipline us, to bring us back to himself. Like this touch that dislocated Jacob's hip and made him walk with a limp for the rest of his life was actually an act of God's grace. It made him stop being so dependent on himself and it made him depend on God with these difficulties in our lives, they teach us how to walk by faith. They teach us how to depend on God because when everything else in your life gets taken away, in that moment, you're able to see that Jesus really is enough. That even at the bottom, he is still enough. This is why Paul can say, after he prayed three times for God to take his pain and suffering away, and God didn't, he says God revealed to him that his grace was sufficient for him because his power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. And so Paul says, I'll boast all the more in my weakness then because that's when I'm actually strong. Like as difficult as it has been when God has taken away the things in my life that I have looked to to fulfill me, whether it was sports or a relationship or an opportunity, the times when I felt like I had absolutely dead-ended my life like Jacob Man, as awful as those times were, I I would not want to go through them again, but I would not trade them for anything because in breaking me, God brought me to a deeper dependence on himself. Like the the nearness I felt to him in those moments and the joy I had in him was like nothing else. And, And I can say I depend on Jesus today in ways that I just would not if my life had just been one big success after another like I planned it out. Be like this reality is why Charles Spurgeon can say something as crazy as I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. This is a man that suffered with gout and with depression for the vast majority of his life. And he's not saying that his sufferings or the things that happened to him were good. And he's not saying that he loved his struggles and his sufferings. He's saying that he's thankful that God was able to use even his suffering and pain as a way to draw him closer. Himself. And so listen, if you're walking through something like this, I'm not at all trying to minimize the pain that you're walking through. I'm trying to encourage you that God is so big and so in control that He's able to use even it as a means to draw you closer to Himself. That because of Him, your pain is not wasted. None of it is wasted. And so here's what I want to encourage you with. Are you in the low place? Are you walking through a difficult circumstance and time? Does it feel like God is fighting against you? He's not. He's not. He is in the low place with you. He's not trying to crush you. He knows exactly what it is like. He's walked through it before you. Jesus knows what it is like to walk with a limb. He's not doing it to crush you, He's using it to draw you closer to Himself. That he can give you more of himself. So if you are walking through something like this, do you know what you do? You just cling like Jacob. You just hold on because that's how you win the victory. Because the good news that we can know is that in in all of our attempts to hold on, the good news is that Jesus isn't going to let go of us. He's not going to lose his grip on you, ever. Man, and if if you're like me and you hear this story, and you think, man, if God would just do that for me, if I could just see God face to face, and I know I'd trust him, I know I'd walk with him deeper, I know I would walk in deeper obedience to him, here's what you can know. Now, the Bible says in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus in becoming a man, Jesus has made him known, that Jesus in his humanity has made the invisible God visible so that we could see the glory of God. Like Jesus just appeared as a man to Jacob on this night, but the day came when he actually became a man in reality so that we could see and know the glory of God. And Paul tells us that the place where we see the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And that even though we see now in a glass darkly, the day is coming when we will see face to face, when we will see in fullness, when we will know as we have been known. We will see Jesus' face. And we will live in the beauty of that sight without sin forevermore. That's the blessing that we are waiting on. But the good news is that God hasn't just left us to wait. Peter was one of the three disciples that got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus transfigured before him. And do you know what he says about that moment in 2 Peter chapter 1? He said that it just confirms the words of Scripture even more and that we will do well to pay attention to them until Jesus returns because this is where we see the glory of Jesus. Paul says the same thing, that the place we see the glory of God is in the face of Christ and the place we see the face of Christ is in the Scriptures, in the Bible, Old and New Testament. That's why Augustine can call the Bible the face of God for now. This is where we see Jesus' face in the scriptures. It's where you come to truly know God. This is where we wrestle with God in prayer, where we say, God, this is my situation, but this is what you've said. This is what you've promised. Please keep your promise to me. We, We seek his face and we pray his promises back to him and we ask him to give us more of himself and the good news that he will. He will, he will bless us with more of himself.